0: Good morning, brothers and sisters from the Bateman family. As many of you will have heard, the rest of my household, myself included, have decided to join the family chain of COVID infections. David is currently our only holdout, so we'll pray that that will continue. Um, while I, being honest, don't feel the greatest today, I want you to allow me to take a moment to show utter gratitude to our God for his infinite wisdom and foresight for the church that he has assembled. Here I am, able to preach remotely, when um, I'm unable to come to church this morning in person. I get to come here on an evening when there's no one around and chase myself around with Lysol, but I'm able to come and share God's Word with you without spreading illness, so that is such a blessing. It's a real testament to God's goodness. Also, it's a testament to the giftings of so many within our congregation, um, particularly our tech team and our administrator and our deacons in making this happen. I also cannot help but praise God as the pastor of this uh, smaller, now single-pastor church, Um, I am so grateful that I can be confident that if I were to be totally incapacitated by illness that we have been provided with some amazingly gifted lay elders within the church who could have stepped in if necessary. Thankfully that has not been required here, but I cannot explain how blessed I feel knowing that God has given this kind of safety net regardless of whether or not it's been used. Throughout the last two years of COVID, God has made it possible for us to operate in a way that is so much more flexible than ever before. Obviously, we pray that these skills and tools will be much less needed as things with COVID seem to be winding down a bit. But what a blessing it is to have just in case. So even through our hardship over the last couple of years, God has been caring for his people and equipping them to continue to minister the gospel regardless of the conditions or situations in which his church finds itself. To God be the glory, and my thanks to everyone who has participated in this process. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your church, your church that would seek to know you and hear your voice, and as such we come to to your word seeking to hear your truth. Lord, we pray that what we read this morning and hear preached would be applied by your spirit to our hearts and our lives. Lord, may you make it profitable and good medicine to the soul. Lord, that you would draw us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the words that we hear and read this morning. And God, may you be honored and glorified in all that we say and all that we do. We do thank you so much for the ways that you have prepared this church for a time such as this, where things aren't going exactly according to plan. But God, you have seen all of this coming and prepared us for it nonetheless. Lord, we... Pray for those in our church who are sick, myself included, and ask that you would bring this illness to a quick conclusion, and for the COVID illness as a whole, that you would bring about an end to this season of restrictions and fear and concern that has plagued us over the last couple of years. Lord, we trust you in all of these things. We trust you to Guide and direct our church as you have, you have seen fit. And Lord, we trust that you are good in the midst of all of this. So Lord, we commit this service to you, each part of it. We thank you for each one that has been involved in it so far. And we pray that, again, you would just use this for your glory and for the good of your people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 8, seeing Christ as the eternal priest, replacing the old with a new and better covenant. We saw that the old covenant was central to the life of the Hebrew people and how the new covenant simultaneously fulfilled the old and then also caused it to become obsolete, to grow old and become ready to vanish away. In chapter 9 where we are going to be this morning, our author keys in on two more important elements of the Jewish faith that he was warning against his readers returning to. This week we'll look at the first of these elements, that being the tabernacle or the temple, and if God wills, next week we will engage with another important aspect, that is the Old Testament sacrificial system. So would you come with me to the text as we read Hebrews chapter 9. We are going to read all of chapter 9 and, Lord willing, come back into some of it for next week. So, again, Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations, for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, This is God's Word, His communication to His people, and His message for His church. Like I said, Lord willing, we will deal with the regulations for sacrifices next week. But this morning, I wanted to mind the importance of what is called this earthly place of holiness, And how it has been replaced in the new covenant. When speaking of the first 10 verses of chapter 9, John MacArthur says In these verses, the author gives a brief description of the tabernacle, to which some 50 chapters of the Old Testament are devoted, including the tabernacle service. Our author this morning says that the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. This tent was the tabernacle, the mobile temple that was designed by God and given step by step to Moses. The details were incredibly specific, down to the actual weights of gold, the types of yarn, the specific woods that were meant to be used. Nothing was left to chance. God was very clear about what he wanted his earthly tent to look like. In the holy place, lampstand, table, bread of the presence. In the most holy place, the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Above it, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Each of these, indeed every piece of the entire tabernacle, was chosen with a purpose. We are told that they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Nothing out of place, nothing added, nothing subtracted. There is a sermon to be preached for every component of the tabernacle. Seriously, every element of the entire tabernacle in some way reflects the perfect heavenly vision and as such reflects something about our God. But our author this morning kind of curiously just almost totally dismisses them, saying, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. A brief mention, and no more, is the equivalent of, but we don't have time for that right now. These items would be among the most priceless treasures known to mankind if they were discovered today. They held enormous symbolic value. But they aren't what our author wanted to touch on this morning. It's more focused on the divisions of the tabernacle and the activities that happen therein. If you remember back to your Sunday school teaching, um, you'll remember that the tabernacle layout was three main divisions. You have the outer courtyard and then the holy place, followed by the most holy place or the holy of holies. Wherever that tabernacle was set up was to become holy ground. It was there on earth that God had chosen to dwell among his people. The purpose of the tabernacle was to be that dwelling place and to symbolically demonstrate to man what the cost would be to come to the Lord. As you moved through the tabernacle and thereby closer to God, things became more and more restricted as to who could enter. Even just to come to the courtyard was reserved only for the people of Israel, and of them only those who were ritually clean. In the courtyard you would have found the bronze basin for washing and the sacrificial altar. The people would come here to make their sacrifices, but this is as far as they would go. The next was the holy place. Here was the exclusive domain of the priesthood. In this holy place, the Priests performed their regular duties. And finally, the most holy place, or holy of holies. This was accessible only by the high priest, and then only once a year. This day was called the Day of Atonement. It's still celebrated by believers in Judaism worldwide as the most holy day of their calendar. You might recognize its Jewish name as Yom Kippur. Our author seems particularly focused on this Day of Atonement, the day on which the high priest would come personally into the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat itself to make atonement for his own sins and for those of the people. The commandments surrounding the Day of Atonement are all found in Leviticus 16, and we'll look more, like I said, at the sacrificial aspect next week. For this morning, however recognize that much of the Day of Atonement was spent atoning for and cleansing the tabernacle. From Leviticus 16, a few passages. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way... Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat. On the east side, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. The priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And there shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all of their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses this act of atonement this entering into the holy places and consecrating them with blood it is identified as a symbol of the age where gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but only deal with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of the reformation this week as we look at the significance of the passing of the tabernacle Realize this, and I believe this is part of our author's main point. Even just the tabernacle on earth required great cleansing. The blood of bulls and rams to even be considered a place of earthly holiness. It is only an earthly place of holiness by the shedding of blood. And even that was only temporary as it had to be renewed each year. For our audience of Hebrew believers, our author wants to leave no trace of doubt that the tabernacle that their ancestors worshiped in and that they would have worshiped in, the temple that they would have worshiped in, it was all temporary. It was all passing. At this church, we've had the privilege of having some amazing artists come through our church and our youth ministry. Um, Creating visual art is a skill that I have never possessed one iota of talent in, but I am more than capable of appreciating it. Thankfully, I've been the recipient of several artistic gifts over the years here, and almost any time that I'm given a piece of artwork, my response is usually the same. I'm going to hold on to this until you become a famous artist. The idea there is that an original piece of artwork is of inestimably more value than a copy or a print. I can go online right now and purchase a full-size, life-size print of Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. One of the most famous paintings in the world and it would cost me maybe $200. And that is for, like, the canvas print, the most high-quality print. But then the value placed on the original, and even this value was just an estimate because it's a priceless piece of art history, but the value that it had been set out was over $100 million. Both the print and the original are beautiful in their own rights, but even as versions of each other... One is of inestimably greater value. And if you had the original, I could hardly imagine you hanging the print instead. And unfortunately, this is what the Jewish people were doing and what we are sometimes want to do. They were clinging to the print rather to, than to the original, the symbol of something rather than he who would come in the form of a man. clinging to the tabernacle rather than recognizing that Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. Then through greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Remember that moment in... Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the moment that the barriers between God and his people came down. The moment where the great gulf of sin between us and him had been bridged. And the moment where tabernacles and temples became obsolete. And we know that what was becoming obsolete and growing old was ready to vanish away. So regarding the tabernacle, these things had become obsolete. All the physical trappings of this earthly place of holiness had lost their shine. But the obvious question for God's faithful was, well then what? We've already acknowledged that Christ was the high priest. Now we've seen the temple outmoded. Had God then left his people adrift with no priest and no place of worship? We know that in the Holy Spirit our great priest made good on his promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And he had gone ahead into the greater and more perfect tent, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. So the believers did still have a priest. But it might indeed seem that in the interim, that the believers were left spiritually homeless. We have the spirit representing our priest, but we didn't have a place of worship to call home. And this is part of what we'll often call the almost-but-not-yet, or already-but-not-yet nature of our faith today. We know that this earth is not our final home, and that the heavenly tent which we look forward to is yet coming. But we are encouraged by our author in chapter 4 to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How do we reconcile those two? How are the Hebrew believers to deal with their old place of worship becoming obsolete? Brothers and sisters, both then thousands of years ago and today in 2022, believers must depend wholly on Christ Christ. That is why we recognize that there is no longer an earthly, holy place, that the church is not a building. My pulpit this evening while I'm here preaching is no more holy than the pew that you're sitting in this morning. This pulpit is no more holy than the couch or the computer chair or the big rig seat of the people who will listen to this online. The holy place, our place of worship, is found only in Christ. And that is why in Matthew 18, Jesus said to his disciples, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Why in 1 Peter 2, we're told, as you come to him, A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. No longer is our worship confined to a temple or a tabernacle with an imperfect and limited priest. Now we have the joy of worshiping together, each one of us who will persevere in our obedience to Christ, from the least to the greatest, we will know him. We will know our perfect high priest. That's not to say that we're free to just worship alone in our homes and in whatever manner that we please. God is clear in his instructions elsewhere that he wants us to worship gathered as a congregation, and he has specific criteria for how he would be worshiped. And it is important that we as believers worship God in the way that he desires to be worshipped. It does mean that we need not travel to the temple in Jerusalem to worship at a specific building. But we still must worship together with other believers and as a part of a local body. But why is that possible? Why are we able to worship in this way? You and I would not have even been considered clean enough to enter the courtyard of the tabernacle that was called the earthly place of holiness. We are not Jews and we are not ceremonially clean. How then are we invited, not just into the earthly tabernacle, but invited as we have need to come before the throne of grace in heaven? This throne is the model after which the Holy of Holies is measured. Its copy was accessible only by the high priest once a year. And yet we are invited to come as we have need. We may come because of our Savior, because of our great high priest, because he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. No longer do God's people linger at the outskirts of the temple, imagining what it must be like to enter the holy place or even the most holy place to know God at such a level. No longer must we travel to meet God at his earthly temple, for he is making we who believe into his temple. He is coming to dwell with man, that he may be our God and we may be his people. Now, obviously, this isn't complete. There is great promise for the future when we taste what we have today that we only taste in part And one day it will come to total fullness upon Christ's return. But for now, we worship together with our fellow believers, knowing that the access we have comes only from and through Christ. And we eagerly await the day when Christ shall appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. And while we wait for Christ's return or the day he calls us home, each believer, whether from the original audience or today's hearers, must be wary of returning to what is comfortable but useless. Returning to what we know holds no joy or power when compared to the surpassing greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I may be beating a dead horse, but not many of us will be tempted to return to worship at a Jewish temple. But many of us will be tempted to worship at an altar of our own design, to worship at the familiar altar of what the earth has placed before us as being valuable. returning to that which is comfortable but useless. Instead, you and I must come to worship only in Christ, only as Christ has commanded us to worship. And we must come to him knowing that it is only by him that we come. Let us pray that Our Lord will cause us to persevere unto the end in this pursuit of worshiping Him. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come before You knowing that we can in no way deserve the work that has been done on our behalf. We come before You now only by the merit of Your Son, Jesus Christ, We come before your throne seeking grace. We come before your throne seeking your power to accomplish what you have given us to do. And all of this not for our own glory, but for your glory and for the good of your church. Lord, I pray that each one here this morning would come to know you and come to seek you. And that we would not seek you by any means other than your son, Jesus Christ, for he is the only way. Lord, you are God and you are good. And God, we ask that you would work in us to conform us to the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you have seen fit to glorify yourself in this way. We commit the rest of our day to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now would you please stand with me as you are able and hear our benediction from Hebrews 13. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. You are dismissed, and Lord willing, I will see you in person next week.